0: listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. I'll be reading from the book of James, chapter 5. Would you please rise as we hear from Scripture this morning? Starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray The prayer of a righteous person has a great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may
1: be seated. The most radical Christian that I have ever known is uh, probably somebody whose name you would not recognize. Marianne Keekler died just uh, last year in her 90s. Mary Ann was an older saint at First E-Free Church in St. Louis. Uh, I was uh, a young seminary grad, my first full-time grown-up job as a pastor. And at that point, Marianne was already in her 70s and uh, was one of the most kind, encouraging, humble, prayerful, thoughtful followers of Jesus I have ever known. Marianne had lost her husband decades before, and out of that grief, she started a ministry to widows and widowers to walk through that pain with them out of her own experience. Marianne would write cards of encouragement, uh, maybe 20 or more every week, to all kinds of people that she met until in her last year, she was no longer physically able even to do that. She made it her ministry to come alongside me as a, a young, freshly minted seminary grad to pray with me, to pray for me, uh, to encourage me, to affirm me. She always had a smile. She always had a kind word. It was just a gentleness and a graciousness about her. I taught a class uh, at First three one time over uh, how to experience the presence of Jesus in our everyday life, and Marianne was there faithfully every week, someone who had been walking with Jesus longer than I had been alive. But she was there listening and learning, and honestly, I learned more from her presence than I'm sure she did from my teaching. Marianne Keekler was not a radical Christian in the way that we often think of it. She didn't have a social media platform. She didn't have a big voice. She didn't lead a huge cause. She didn't direct a a multi-million dollar staff. She didn't have a ministry named after her. But Marianne had a radical faith in Jesus that showed up in her life. And I say radical in in the most literal sense. Maybe I can sort of channel Pastor Joey here for a minute. It comes from the Latin word radix, which means root. But that's important, right? To be radical ultimately means to be rooted, to be grounded in something. Marianne was radical in the sense that that a radical Christian is not someone whose external or uh, external behavior or activity or, or leadership looks really impressive, and and makes a big splash in the way that maybe we think of it. It's the Christian whose invisible life. Their roots, their heart, uh, goes down deep into the soil of a relationship with God that's nurtured by grace. It's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about in John 15. Remember when he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. It's all this imagery of being... Radical of being rooted in communion with God. And now James is wrapping up this letter that that we've been in for the last several weeks. And uh, you guys will be really patient with me if you think we're going to go through James 5, 7 to 12 again. uh, We're actually going forward from there and starting in verse 12 this week. James is coming back to a theme, though, that he has hit on over and over again. That radical faith, yes, is sometimes lived out in doing big things, but really radical faith for Jesus is lived out in the reality of everyday life. That radical faith is expressed in our relationship with God being demonstrated in our words and in our actions. Radical faith is a working faith. It's a faith that we practice, that we put into practice. It endures trials. It asks for wisdom. It looks after widows and orphans in their distress. Radical faith avoids being corrupted by the pollution of the world. Radical faith trusts God's provision, controls how we speak and and what we do. The faith that we profess in Jesus what we really believe is always going to show up in our lives, and especially in our relationships with other people. Think back to someone in your life whose memory is perhaps painful. There's hurt, there's regret, maybe there's unresolved issues, maybe there's something hurtful there even to this day. And then think of someone who brings a smile to your face. Someone who's had a presence in your life that was refreshing, that was encouraging, that was a blessing, that was a joy. And in either case, it could be a spouse, it could be a parent, a child, a coworker, a neighbor, a grandparent. But in either case, what is it that you think of when you think of those people? You're probably thinking of their actions, what they did. And maybe even more so, you're thinking of their words. The impact that their words had in your life. It's either actions and words that have hurt you or helped you. Their speech was blessing or cursing in some ways. And James is saying, our speech has huge implications. Your words can change someone's life and your words reflect what you really believe. That's the key idea, that radical faith, radical faith directs our speech. What you believe ultimately, what you are rooted in, comes out in your actions and even more so in your words. That's true for all of us. And radical faith, Faith that is rooted in communion with God directs our speech in specific ways. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 5. Pull out your uh, sermon journals if you have them, uh, scripture journals. And we're in this very last section of James. And I'm going to start us today in verse 12. It's a transitional statement from the passage that Pastor Bob did a great job taking us through last week into what James is concluding with today. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James' first point here about our speech is that radical faith produces trustful speech trustful speech. I was going through this passage yesterday with Pastor Nathan, and uh, we were trying to do some wordsmithing and and looking for a word that that would get both of the things that I think James is talking about here, and I threw out trustful, and he's like, is that even a word? And I looked it up, and it's a word! I'm like, yes! (laughs) Trustful. Trustful means two different things here. First, it means worthy of trust. It means faithful, and that's what James is clearly getting at here, that he's criticizing swearing, not so much in terms of curse words or crude language, but taking on oaths and and making promises. James is saying radical faith produces believability in what you say, integrity in your speech, so that you don't have to make promises or oaths on some other authority for people to believe you. Simply your yes or your no is enough, and there's a challenge here that that I think we really don't even like to acknowledge about ourselves, but we are all wired to lie. Research has shown that babies as young as six months old know how to deceive their parents. Yes, and all you parents are chuckling, right? Seriously, research has shown that six-month-old babies have learned that when I cry, mom or dad comes to do something pleasant, and so babies have figured out I can cry even when nothing is wrong, and then mom and dad will come and something good will happen that I want. In another experiment, 60% of people lied several times in a 10-minute interview. Experts estimate that we lie up to 100 times a day. 85% of people lie on resumes, and 90% of people lie on online dating profiles. (laughs) I just saw a great thing on social media this last week. Somebody has took Bible teacher Beth Moore, they took her profile picture and used it for their dating profile. Think about what that catfishing situation is going to look like. I was expecting to see Beth Moore, and you're not her we are almost constantly trying to shape the way that people see us, people think about us. And swearing oaths is a way to appear more honest. Right? On my honor. I swear on a stack of Bibles. God is my witness. I'm telling you the truth. Because James' point is that you know, the greater the authority you swear on, the more weight that adds to your claim to be telling the truth. And, Sometimes it's, it's not even that kind of a thing, it, it, you know, it could sound like, you know, I've, I've really prayed about this, and, and I think this is what God is telling me to do, or, or God has, God really wants me to say this, or to do this, that, that's like the plus four, draw plus four in uno, right, it's the spiritual trump card, nothing can beat that, well, if God told you that, then, you know, we can't say anything about it. James is not saying don't take oaths in appropriate context. Wedding vows and you know, swearing uh, in court, of course. Jonathan and David made an oath to each other in the Bible. God makes promises to his people. But if you have to use an oath to get people to believe that you're telling the truth, James is saying that's a problem. Because as people whose identity is rooted in the truthfulness of God and our faith in him, our speech should be reliable. Radical faith produces trustful speech. But did you notice how James introduces this this little section? But above all, he says, don't swear, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I think there's something going on here that's more than just being trustworthy and reliable. Trustful also means full of trust and trusting in faith. Throughout this letter, even right before this section, in the middle part of James 5, he's been calling us to trust in God in difficult circumstances, in challenging and hurtful relationships. He's saying, be patient, show grace, continue to endure. In suffering and difficulty, you see, we might be tempted to cut corners, maybe to try and make some kind of a deal with God to to get the outcome that we want when Martin Luther was a young man he was out walking in a thunderstorm and a lightning bolt struck a tree right next to him and he fell to the ground terrified and and cried out God save me from this storm and I will become a monk and he did it now maybe you've not been tempted in that way to you know promise God monkery But maybe something like this has come out of your mouth. To swear some oath to God, if only he'll come through from you. God, if you let me out of this hangover, I'll never drink again. Oh God, if you will just save my child, I will. Oh Jesus, help me solve this problem and I will fill in the blank. James says, don't swear like that. As if you could manipulate God. And get the outcome that you want by your words, by your promise. Let faith that is rooted in God give you confidence in the trouble. James' whole plea here, you see, throughout this book is for us not to just be merely religious, but to be people of radical faith, faith that we practice in everyday life. And it's a lack of faith that doubts God's goodness that wants to strike some kind of a bargain or draw God into verifying the truthfulness of what we're saying. And that kind of swearing will lead to condemnation, James says, because it demonstrates a lack of faith, a fundamental lack of faith that is destructive. Don't allow suffering to pressure you into unbelief. Don't try to impress others or manipulate God by your words because if your faith is rooted, it is radical in God's grace then you can be at peace, whatever's going on. Radical faith also produces prayerful speech. That's, of course, the second big section here. Look in verse 13. Is any of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any of you sick? Let him call for the elders and pray. And the prayer of faith will save that one. Look at the end of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Elijah was just like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three and a half years it didn't rain, and then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, you can probably recognize that this passage could lead to and has led to all kinds of confusion and misunderstanding because there are people that read this passage and others like it and suggest that if you just have enough faith, nothing bad will happen to you. If you become sick and pray in faith, you will be healed. Or that if you simply have enough faith like Elijah and pray, God will absolutely do what you ask. It's kind of a name it and claim it theology. But the Bible, of course, is filled with examples of people who had great faith in God and suffered terribly. <laughs> we experience that in our own lives, do we not? Is it really just a lack of faith that brings suffering and pain in our experience? All of those godly people of great faith got sick and died at some point, of course. And James has just called us in the middle of suffering to show patience and endurance in the trial. So he's not telling us that if you pray in faith, nothing bad will happen and all your dreams will come true. Instead, he says, if you are suffering, pray. And maybe there's a part of us that says, really, James? That, like, that's it? I, I want the suffering to stop. That's what I want. That, that sounds, you know, really spiritual, but not real practical. When I'm hurting, I often want to take things into my own hands and do something about it and get the outcome that I want. James says, Pray. So yes, pray, Lord, take the suffering from me. That's perfectly legitimate. But I think James would go farther than that and say it's also legitimate and appropriate to pray, God, give me the endurance and the patience in this suffering. God, protect my heart in this suffering so that I don't become judgmental and bitter in the middle of it. God, guard my heart and my responses to you and to others in this suffering. Father, help me to have patience with others. Jesus, help me to believe the best about others instead of becoming embittered and resentful. Because prayer isn't just about communicating with God. Prayer is about communion with God and the impact that it has on us. It changes our hearts. It's about changing our desires and our motives, and it refocuses us back on our Father, Creator, Savior, Redeemer. Radical faith produces prayerful words that are about drawing us into greater communion with God in the middle of the suffering. And then he says, if anyone is cheerful, let them sing praise. Often when things are going well, what do we not do? We often don't pray. We often don't praise God in the middle of it because everything's great. I don't need God right now. God, when things turn bad again, I'll I'll pull the fire alarm and let you know about it. No, James is saying, when things are going well, praise God, let him know that you are thankful. Acknowledge his goodness in, in that provision. Radical faith produces praise in good times and, yeah, ultimately in bad times as well because God is good all the time. And if you're sick, the word sick here means weak, And it can refer to physical weakness, but just as often in the Bible, it refers to spiritual or emotional weakness or trouble. And James says if you're experiencing weakness, don't go through it on your own call for the elders of the church, call for godly people, call for the church leaders. We get stressed out, freaked out by something scary, something dangerous, something threatening, something that seems overwhelming to us. We get emotionally drained. We don't know what we're going to do. I'm being stretched to the breaking point. When we were moving to St. Louis from Wisconsin uh, to go to seminary, I was driving the U-Haul truck and Amelia was following behind me with uh, Jackie, our oldest, who at the time was about a year and a half and she, Amelia was pregnant with Ben uh, about five months at that time. And uh, I was watching in the rearview mirror as a car, rear ended Amelia and sent her and my daughter and unborn son into the concrete barrier on the side of the highway at 60 plus miles an hour. And Amelia started going into labor at five months. And we were rushed to the hospital. And the only people we knew in St. Louis was Amelia's sorority sister and her husband. And we called them and said, please pray for us. Because we don't know what's going to happen. And they called their pastor, a guy that we had never met and didn't know in our lives, and he came to the hospital to pray with us. James says, when you are overwhelmed, when you are scared, when you are at the end of your rope, call for godly people. Don't go through it alone. Contact the church leaders. Get the elders involved. Have them praying for you because faith that is rooted in God acknowledges my weakness and my need of other people and that their prayers matter too. And, and then have them anoint with oil. Now, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing, right? That's out of our cultural context. In, in the Bible, people were anointed with oil when they were set apart in some special way before God. Oil was also used uh, medicinally. It, it, it had healing properties. So, so there's this overlapping connection of God's presence and God's blessing and, and God's healing on this individual So the sick one being raised up, it can mean physical healing, but you can probably also hear the echo there of resurrection. And I think James is acknowledging what we know in our own experience, that all healing in this life is temporary. And the ultimate healing that we will all experience in Christ is being raised up with him. And yes, God does wonderfully save and heal in this life, but the real healing will not come until we see Jesus face to face. And that will happen. So we pray boldly and expectantly to a God who can and who does heal, and we rest in his grace to endure if we're called not to experience the healing that we would like to have in this life. And radical faith calls us to pray because our prayer accomplishes things. James says, look at Elijah. He was not some super saint. He was not some special wonder guy. He was just like us, literally. I mean, he could be sitting here on a You wouldn't pick him out of a crowd. But when he prayed that it wouldn't rain, it didn't rain for three and a half years. Amazing. And, and then when he did pray for the rain, it came. Prayer is powerful. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. God invites us to pray because he wants to bestow on us the dignity of being causes, of being the agents through whom he would accomplish his work in this world. That's all the way back to Genesis, isn't it? God creates the man and the woman and he puts them in the garden and he puts them to work saying, go rule over this world under my lordship and, and make it look like everything it ought to look like. And prayer is calling us back to that vocation of partnering with God to accomplish His work in this world and and to accomplish His will in this world. That's what prayer is about. We make a difference in this world in cooperation with God. Pray because prayer accomplishes things, James says. Radical faith, faith rooted in Jesus, produces prayerful speech. And radical faith produces transformational speech. It's the last thing James is getting at here. The words that we say have eternal significance. Look in verse 19, my my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Is anyone here looking for, like, the rest of James chapter 6 besides me? Like, that, this is not how you end a letter, right? But James wants to finish with this powerful thought. As you trust God in your trials, help others to do the same because the stakes are high and your words could make an eternal difference in someone's life. James wants us to get the same conviction that he has that sin is not just some minor blemish on an otherwise good character. Sin is death. Sin is deadly. Sin is destructive. It is life threatening danger for any of us. And when he speaks of saving the sinner's soul from death, he's going beyond just you know, mere physical existence and talking about eternal reality. And we have to fight the temptation to make this a proof text verse about whether or not Christians can lose their salvation. That's not James' point. He's warning us that genuine faith includes repentance for sin and obedience to Jesus. His point is that sin, left unchecked, ultimately always destroys the sinner. Radical faith, genuine faith, compels us to flee from sin and call and invite others to do the same thing. And I don't think James is intending to draw some distinction here between evangelizing non-Christians or discipling or calling Christians to repentance. It's all one and the same because the outcome will be the same. There's an urgency here in either case The urgent call is to call one another to repentance, to agree with God about our sin and to flee to him as the only source who can save us from guilt and death. Some of you hearing this message, you know someone that needs to hear this. Someone who needs to be lovingly challenged and there's a crucial conversation that you need to have. But that's why we also have to go back to remind ourselves of what James says in verse 16 for a context that we cannot miss. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Why? I mean, we confess to God because he's the one that we sin against. We confess to people that we have wronged, but why acknowledge our sins generally to one another? I think it has to do with the posture that James is calling us to in repentance, which is humility. When you're truly sorry for what you've done, you can't be boastful or proud. You you can't go after other people in their sin with an attitude of superiority and, and condemnation because of what they've done. Confessing our sins to one another, of course, using wisdom and discretion, brings us to a place where where we can respond to others with grace and compassion instead of anger and judgment. See, if we stand together before God as people acknowledging we all need His righteousness, we all need His forgiveness, we all need His grace, we're going to be driven, we're going to be able to confess our wrongs to one another. And instead of blaming and accusing one another, we're going to be slow to anger, slow to judge, and quick to forgive, as James has told us. Instead of criticizing, we'll intercede for one another. Because it's through this shared confession that, that we acknowledge there is no moral high ground at the foot of the cross. We are all desperately Desperately, profoundly in need of God's grace and kindness in the gospel. And that's the posture that makes it possible for us to lovingly call people away from death to Christ in a healthy way. It's a struggle, and I have not always done it well. We had a situation in a, in a previous church where there was an important a long term church leader who had uh, you know a really significant leadership position in the church, but he was an emotional bully, and he left a trail of relational wreckage in his wake that somehow we just decided, well, you know, but he 's important, and it's going to be a hard thing to talk about and until it finally got to the point where we had to come together and meet with him and say, this is not okay. Not just because you're hurting people in the way that you talk and in the way that you treat them and the temper tantrums that you throw. Not just in the way that you know, you're always critical of everyone and everything. You're leading yourself to destruction if you don't get off this path. Radical faith produces transformational speech. There are a thousand things that we're going to talk to hundreds of people about. And and that's just part of life, right? But James is saying, "Oh, oh, in all those things, this is the thing people need to hear from you. If you know God's truth, if you know God's grace, God has placed you in that person's life for a purpose, to tell them the truth. Yes, for their need of repentance, but in that context of their need for clinging to God's limitless love, his radical pursuit of them, his delight in loving and forgiving broken people. Marianne Keekler, I argue, was a radical Christian in the most profound way. And I'm... Sad in some way for all of you that you didn't get to know her. Because even just thinking about her brings joy and blessing to my heart. That's what James is calling us to be for one another. To be radical Christians who live out our faith in a way that brings blessing and encouragement and life to others. Radical faith, radical faith produces disciples whose speech is prayerful and truthful and transformational. Can we be those kind of people by God's grace? Let's pray. God, thank you for this word through your servant James. It it is a hard word in many ways, but a loving word. God, help us to hear it that way and even now work against our, def- our self-defenses, our fleshly responses of self-righteousness and how other people need to hear what James is saying. Oh, God, humble us to see that we're the people who need this word. Humble us so that you would lift us up and that we would be healed. God, may our speech, may our words, may our lives reflect a faith that is rooted in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.